0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. People are gearing up to head into Colorado's backcountry after an isolated summer.
1: We saw this last spring when the ski areas in Colorado closed quickly. Everybody turned to the backcountry and it was chaos. So we're preparing this year for the same type of thing. Does that mean that people need to be really thinking of taking care of themselves and taking care of each other? Yeah, definitely.
0: Then a new film tackles a tough subject, the death of a loved one, especially the death
2: of a child. We gotta kinda make a plan. She's calm, she's comfortable, but my guess is she may only have days or weeks to live.
0: We'll talk with doctors who work with families through the wrenching process of letting go.
3: Thank you to everyone who gives to support the work Colorado Public Radio does every day. Thanks to those who support by donating a vehicle, by underwriting, or by making CPR part of their estate plans. And thanks to those who volunteer, who share feedback, and who make CPR an important part of their everyday. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The call of the high country may be even stronger this winter after a summer in isolation. Winter gear like cross-country skis has been selling strong, and more people than normal are signing up for avalanche safety courses. But this potential crush of people during the pandemic worries search and rescue officials. Let's talk about the risks of the winter backcountry and how to stay safe. Ethan Green is the director of the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. Ethan, welcome.
3: Thanks,
1: Avery. Glad to be here.
0: Jeff Sparhawk is president of the Colorado Search and Rescue Association. Jeff, thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you. We appreciate the chance to talk directly to your listeners.
0: And Russell Hunter is president and CEO of the Colorado Mountain School. Russell, welcome to the program.
4: Thanks, Avery. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Ethan, set the scene for us. Colorado's backcountry in the winter is beautiful, serene, and potentially very dangerous. If someone is new to backcountry adventure, what can they expect to see?
3: Well, there's a tremendous amount of uh, adventure to be had in the Colorado mountains in the wintertime, and it's really a a wonderful and rewarding experience. I think the most important thing for new people is just to go into it eyes wide open that there's a lot of different things they can do and uh, a fair amount of preparation that they need to do depending on what their recreational goals are. And uh, first and foremost, I would encourage people to check the avalanche forecast before they go out at uh, colorado.gov avalanche.
0: We know weather in Colorado can really change on a dime, so that early prep is important. Ethan, Colorado is the deadliest state for avalanches by far. There have been 59 avalanche deaths in Colorado over the last 10 winter seasons. According to CAIC data, all but six occurred in the backcountry. Is there any way to predict how dangerous the upcoming season will be?
3: Well, it's hard to make long-range predictions about avalanche cycles because these cycles are really driven by a series of weather events and sort of the order that these critical weather events come into play. So, we can pay attention to what the National Climate Center is talking about for the upcoming winter, which is generally warm and dry for most of Colorado, Um, but we can't really translate that to actual avalanche cycles because how that unfolds is is what's going to be critical.
0: And what is an avalanche cycle?
3: Well, it's a collection of avalanches of a similar type that is triggered by a similar set of events. Most avalanches happen during and directly after what we call loading events, which are big precipitation events or big wind events where the wind is moving around a lot of snow. But in Colorado, we have a special place in the snow world where we get structural weaknesses that form in the snowpack. Sometimes they happen as early as October. And those can plague us for days and weeks and sometimes months. So we have avalanche cycles that can unfold over the course of a couple of hours from a big storm or that can unfold over the course of several months from one of those structural weaknesses that reactivates when a skier or a snowmobiler goes onto that slope or when we have some other type of loading event like uh, another big snowstorm in the spring.
0: So there are a lot of triggers or a lot of things that lead up to an avalanche occurring Russell, your company, Colorado Mountain School, teaches people how to be safe in the high country, and you've seen a big spike in enrollment for avalanche safety courses before the season even began. What's your takeaway from that?
4: Yeah, I think it's twofold. People recognizing the need to get educated, and I think that's really come from peer pressure to some degree. And I think the second piece is the uncertainty around ski areas this year and the potential restrictions. And so I I think those two things are driving the demand.
0: And I wonder if you could quantify how many more enrollments you're seeing.
4: Yeah, we've seen an incredible increase in the demand. Early in the fall, we had seen six times the number of enrollments compared to previous year. And our number of students for the month of December this year will be twice as much as we did last year.
0: So Jeff, listening to Russell talk about the surge in enrollments, that more people might be going to the backcountry if ski areas are harder to get into, talk to me about the concern that you and the search and rescue community have about how many people will hit the backcountry this winter.
1: You know, backcountry gear is being sold like crazy. There's high demand also for snowmobiles. The concerns about the ski areas, and we saw this last spring when the ski areas in Colorado closed quickly, everybody turned to the backcountry and it was it was chaos. So we're preparing this year for the same type of thing. Uh, hopefully it'll be a, a little bit more controlled because the ski areas will have folks skiing at them, but there's definitely a concern that the backcountry gets a lot of people in it and uh, quite frankly, a lot of inexperienced people who don't really know what they're getting themselves into.
0: And when you say last winter was chaos, what does that mean from a search and rescue perspective?
1: Well, I I don't know if everybody saw, but there was a video put out on Berthoud Pass and um, on Loveland Pass where cars were parked for miles and miles and miles along the mountain roads, uh, parked in avalanche chutes, and people not understanding that if you park your car there, it might not be there when you get back, right? Or, uh, you know, running up those roads with an avalanche beacon and realizing that almost nobody along the road there has their transceivers on, right? And so they don't fully understand the safety that they need to be paying attention to when going into the backcountry.
0: And people maybe don't even know what it is they don't know. Jeff, search and rescue teams, they're dealing with this double whammy. The pandemic is expected to push more people into the backcountry, like we're talking about. That could mean higher demand for search and rescue operations. And even during the summer, Mike LaRue, who heads Archuleta County's emergency operations, said search and rescue teams there have been more active.
5: This year for us has been a lot busier in the search and rescue realm. And despite COVID, we've had a huge out-of-town population. We have been way busier than we normally have just dealing with uh, people from out of town.
0: So, Jeff, COVID-19 has also hampered the recruiting of search and rescue personnel. Run us through those challenges.
1: Well, so recognize that um, for about three months this year, uh, the whole state was under a stay-at-home order. And uh, that meant that the teams couldn't practice right? We couldn't get together. We can do some stuff remotely via meetings, but a lot of the stuff that we do is as a team, uh, hands-on together. And so we could obviously respond to incidents when somebody called for help, but uh, it made it so that we didn't accept new members. And it put a lot of stress on the current members to be able to respond and also recognize that we're all concerned about being contagious or catching COVID as well. And so, you know, it's kind of a multifaceted thing that we're dealing with, with just increased number of calls, increased stress, and making sure that we're there for everybody. So
0: you're having to deal with more calls with the same people who have already been a part of the crew. And I imagine some people have probably had to drop out. Do you have fewer search and rescue personnel?
1: Yeah, most of the teams are doing all right in terms of personnel, but recognize that especially some of the the older members, uh, they might choose not to respond during this pandemic. And then for the younger members, you know, if they can keep a job, they're going to need to keep their job. And so they might not be as available as they once were.
0: As you're dealing with these personnel issues, you've had to get creative. What kind of partnerships are you forging?
1: You know, we're, we're trying to work out um, all kinds of, of uh, different ways to, to make this all possible. Right? We're constantly in communication with the Forest Service and with the sheriffs and with many different entities across the state uh, to make sure that, that we have the ability to, to respond. And it's certainly difficult. You know, sometimes we might reach out to the guide services to help us or to local fire departments to help fill in when we don't have enough personnel.
0: And Jeff, do you worry that if there are a lot more people in the backcountry, that that demand could overwhelm search and rescue capacity and some people might not be rescued?
1: You know, we don't quite know what to actually expect this winter. It's unprecedented. We're making uh, plans with folks across the state to make sure that we're doing the best we can. Is it possible that we can't respond? Well, maybe we won't be able to respond immediately, but we'll definitely get there. Does that mean that people need to be thinking, does that mean that people need to be more prepared and be really thinking of taking care of themselves and taking care of each other? Yeah, definitely.
0: Obviously, outdoor recreation is a big part of Colorado's economy. So, Jeff, it's not that you don't want people to participate, even if they're out of state or new to the backcountry. But tell me about how you're thinking about engaging those folks safely.
1: Well, I, you know, I think that uh, everything we've talked about is absolutely necessary and we need to educate people who are coming here from out of state and we need to educate those people who are local to Colorado. We want them out in the back country. We want them enjoying this state. We want them to you know, support the local economies. And so it's it's definitely a balancing act. If people are doing it safely and are enjoying themselves, that's great. If we get overwhelmed, well, we might have a problem then.
0: So it sounds like backcountry knowledge is really important before you get out there. So let's turn to the education and safety training. Ethan, the Colorado Avalanche Information Center promotes know before you go. What is this mantra and why is it so important to the backcountry?
3: Well, it really gets at um, that idea of being prepared. Uh, If you're going out into the Colorado mountains in the wintertime and you're going to be dealing with avalanches, there's a lot of different types of avalanches from you know, pretty small and fairly predictable to very large and uh, things that fall into patterns but are hard to predict on individual slopes. And so how you're going to deal with that, how you're going to manage that risk in the backcountry really changes on what situation you're going to face. And so the first thing to do when you're trying to make a plan and figure out where to go is to have an idea of what the avalanche conditions are, what the weather conditions are likely to be, and make sure that your plan fits those conditions.
0: Russell, this conversation is not a substitute for a real avalanche safety course, but briefly, what do you teach your students about how to stay safe in the backcountry?
4: Yeah, the big thing in a, we call it a level one recreational course, it's really decision making and helping students make better decisions. First, that requires recognizing the risk. So being able to identify avalanche terrain, understanding to some degree the avalanche problems that exist, and again, encouraging them to go to the CAIC because that's real, they're, they're the experts, and then work as a team to create an environment where everybody has a voice and anybody can veto a decision so that collaboratively, the group that you choose to travel with is making the decision whether or not to expose yourself to the risk or not even expose yourself to the risk. That's the main focus is around decision making and terrain analysis. And then there is a a rescue component that goes in for the worst case scenario, but there's a very small portion of the course spent on rescue. It's really fundamentals of the gear and the techniques.
0: Ethan, the CAIC puts out a daily avalanche forecast. You also document avalanches when they occur with the help of people in the backcountry who observed or even triggered them. Last season, there were more than 4,000 avalanches in Colorado. A couple of snowboarders triggered one near Loveland Pass that buried a service road next to the Eisenhower-Johnson Memorial Tunnels on I-70. No one was hurt, but the district attorney charged the boarders with reckless endangerment, even though they reported the avalanche and cooperated with the investigation. Do you worry that that the charges will send a chilling message and people could be less likely to report avalanches to your agency?
3: Yes, we certainly do worry about that. Uh, We depend heavily on uh, sharing information. It's really, it's part of our name, it's what we do, and we get information from lots of different sources, whether it's ski areas, guiding services, and and definitely from the public. And uh, that information makes all of the forecasts better. I think it's important for people to understand that in this particular situation, the avalanche running onto an open road is really different than what most people who report avalanches to the Avalanche Center experience. It's kind of a different and maybe even unique
0: situation. Now, before we wrap up, I'd like to ask each of you to list one thing that people can do to stay safe and have fun in the backcountry this winter. Ethan, why don't you go first?
3: Well, I think the most important thing for people to do before they go out into the backcountry is to check the avalanche and weather forecast and make sure that they're doing something that fits the situation they're likely to encounter. Jeff?
1: Yeah, if I may actually sneak in too. One is along with uh, hiring a guide type service in Get Educated, you can also join the Colorado Mountain Club or the Colorado Snowmobile Association or any of the other local groups to increase that education and recognize that this is a practice. Traveling in the backcountry is a practice and we never are done learning. It's a long process. And so for people not to just take a class and say, I'm done, but to recognize that we need to continually improve our skills and improve our experience.
0: Right. There's a lot to know. And Russell?
1: Yeah, I would say the one thing would be to
4: really be conscientious about the team you travel with and select folks that are trustworthy, communicate well, and are educated.
0: Russell Hunter is the president and CEO of the Colorado Mountain School. Jeff Sparhawk is the president of the Colorado Search and Rescue Association. Ethan Green is the director of the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. All three encourage people to get training on how to navigate Colorado's backcountry safely this winter. According to the CAIC, there have been at least 22 avalanches in Colorado this month, but they've recorded no accidents yet this fall. colleges are still figuring out how to function in the COVID era here in Colorado and across the country. The first full semester of the pandemic is wrapping up. Higher ed has learned some lessons, but there is still a lot of uncertainty. On Thursday, the president of the University of Colorado, Mark Kennedy, is scheduled to join Colorado Matters for an interview. He oversees the various CU campuses, Boulder, Denver, Colorado Springs. So students, parents, teachers, staff, what do you want to know from him? Send your questions to Colorado Matters at CPR.org. That's Colorado Matters at CPR.org. Again, these questions are for the head of the CU system who will join us Thursday. <laughs> A Colorado doctor produced a film about one of the most painful subjects imaginable, the death of a young baby. It shows how certain approaches to death can offer some level of comfort.
4: Your job title is what?
2: I'm the medical director of the pediatric palliative care team.
4: Now say that term for me again, because a lot—that's a lot of people aren't familiar with. It.
2: They don't understand it at all. The word is palliative.
4: Palliative.
2: Mm-hmm. Can you spell it for me. P A L L I A T I V E. And what does that mean? So it means to relieve suffering, and so we tend to have a philosophy, an
6: approach to medicine that's more
2: about.
0: The film is called Palliative, follows Nadia Tremonti. She's a pediatric palliative care doctor in Detroit, Michigan. Tremonti works with families through the wrenching process of letting go. Producer Donald Stater is an emergency room physician in Inglewood, Colorado. He and Dr. Tremonti spoke with my colleague Andrea
6: Dukakis. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us.
2: We're so happy to be here.
6: Dr. Stater, what inspired you to produce this film, and why specifically about palliative care for young, young children?
5: You know, I was really inspired by my own clinical experience, where I had a lot of cases that to this day kind of haunt me about care that we provided that I thought was either futile or really not in the patient's best interest at the end of life. And uh, so we decided to make a film to discuss this really tough subject And we kind of stumbled upon Dr. Tremonti, and we thought that we were going to make a film about kind of traditional older palliative life care. But as we went more and more into the process, we thought that we could say something a lot more unique and a lot more profound by making this movie about children.
6: And just so we understand, we mentioned palliative care in the introduction. Can you explain what that means for folks?
5: Yeah, palliative means to relieve suffering. And really, that's one of the major tenets of what we try to do in medicine is to relieve suffering. And palliative care is a specialty that Dr. Ciamanti is an expert in that really focuses on that as their as their reason of existence.
6: And yet, sometimes in medicine, um, suffering is prolonged in order to prolong a person's life. That's correct.
5: And I think it really depends on the trade-off that you get. All of us, if it comes to a surgery, if it comes to a procedure or something else, on the other side of it, we expect to be either restored to our health or to have more life or benefit on the other side of that suffering. While I think sometimes what happens is at the end of life or in futile areas where we know that patients aren't going to survive, sometimes they'll still go through surgeries or care that actually doesn't prolong life, but might actually result in more suffering than it benefits the patient.
6: Dr. Tremonti, how common is it for young children to die in the U.S.? I know it used to be a lot more common.
2: So I always like to tell people, back in 1900, one in 10 babies who were born died within the first year of life. And about that time, one-third of all deaths in the United States were children under the age of five. And to put that into something to understand now In the last couple of years, it's about 40,000 children dying in the United States a year. And, you know, just right now, to make it very timely, you know, 200,000 people have died of coronavirus, one single acute disease. And so 40,000 children, it's significantly less. The infant mortality rates, instead of being one in 10, are much less than one in 1,000. So there's been a very dramatic change in the way that human beings die.
6: And that actually complicates things, right? Because you now have all this technology that can keep people and babies alive for a lot longer, but that doesn't actually always give them quality of life.
2: It's a huge challenge and it has made, you know, a lot of people see dying as unnatural and i think that's one of the most common things i'll hear when i tell people what i do and they'll say things like oh the death of the of a child is so unnatural and to me it really highlights how quickly culture can change you know when i hear that i always think to myself do you realize that that is unique to our species and in the last hundred years but actually in the world and for a children die, babies die.
5: Yeah, to piggyback on that too, it's when you see dying portrayed on television, so oftentimes medical interventions are portrayed as being too effective. So there was a great study that showed in TV, 75% of people who received CPR lived and 70% of them were neurologically intact, meaning they were able to talk and do everything they were doing before they, you know, coded on television, where in reality, less than 10% of people who experience a cardiac arrest survive. And the only small amount of those, around 30 to 40%, have a neurologically good outcome. And again, it's the perception that's often given by media, et cetera, versus the reality. And I think that as a culture, we've gotten to this point, like Nadia's mentioned, that death is unnatural. And I think we really need to combat that and kind of acknowledge that death is a normal and can be a very beautiful part of life.
6: Dr. Tremonti, are there certain conditions that come up with these babies, or does it run the gamut um, in terms of why they're so ill? I
2: definitely think there are certain diagnoses that we see more of. But I will say on the pediatric front, what is somewhat unique is that there are so many um diseases that are so exceedingly rare and genetic diseases that we're only right now scratching the surface on you know I have many patients who we find that they have a disease that maybe there's you know one in 8 in the world described and so a lot of the illnesses are quite rare when you think of what people are more used to on the adult front so I think You know, a lot of people misunderstand and think that, oh, I work with primarily cancer patients, and obviously cancer is something that people have life experience, they hear that. But I would say that a very large number of my patients have diseases that nobody's heard of or no lay people have or very few people have heard of. I also take care of a lot of patients with neurologic damage from either things that happen at or around the time of birth or accidents, things like, you know, near drowning episodes or um, more traumatic things where there's been, you know, severe injury. And I think the reason I maybe see that more in pediatrics is when these things happen, when people are very, very young and the brain isn't fully developed, the prognosis when we're trying to predict for families, you know, can somebody recover? It's much more challenging and a lot more variability than in the adult community when you're talking about somebody who is already kind of at the prime of their life and they have an injury like this, it's a lot more apparent for, you know, patients and
6: their families, like, we know what the outcome is with a lot more certainty. Dr. Tremonti, you work with a lot of families, often mothers, who have very sick babies. Just
2: watching her a little bit breathe, like, she breathes real, real, real. Light. Like, light. hmm but that's her norm? Yeah, that's normal for her. Even though this pattern of breathing is her norm, it's a little concerning. But it's 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 keeping her going. It just makes it hard to kind of, like, how long can you go like this? Right.
6: You get to the truth very gently, but you have to be direct when you speak with families about a child who's dying. So, you know, I, I think it, like, we got to kind of make a
2: plan. I think if we don't intervene. She's calm. She's comfortable. She's still giving you smiles, but just for a short period of time. And I think that that will continue. But my guess is she may only have days or weeks to live.
6: And I'm guessing you kind of were feeling something, like you're worried.
2: I'm sorry. It's okay. It's a lot.
6: Dr. Tramonti, I wonder, did you have to learn to be direct about a subject that many of us just try to avoid?
2: So, I, I definitely think one component of communicating with families is learned, you know, and I think it involves being really observant, watching throughout my, you know, medical school residency training, watching others interact with families. I do think that there is a part of my skill set that maybe is more inherent that I identified relatively early that for some reasons clear and some reasons unclear, that I seem to be better at these conversations than a lot of my colleagues.
6: Hmm. What do you think it takes? I mean, if you had to teach it, and it sounds like it is sort of an innate part of you, but what do you think it is that you have to do?
2: I think it, first of all, you know, it involves a lot of observation, you know, checking people's, you know, nonverbal communication This was not the first time I had met this family. I had been out to that home many times before, and actually many times since then. I spend a lot of time asking families questions first and then responding afterwards. When I was in medical school, I really embraced the beauty of early in medical school is that you're still more of a layperson than a doctor as you're learning all these new terms in your classes, like words like histology and pathology, then when you watch your senior doctors explaining things to patients, you still identify more with the patient than the doctor. And I think really early on, I could recognize like when the patients were confused or weren't following what was being said. And I, even as I've gotten Further along in my career, when I work with medical students, I tell them that they really bring something to the table because they're still have their feet in two different worlds. And so both their language skills and their experience is still more that of a patient than it is of a doctor. And I think I've always tried very hard to think about that when I'm working with patients. I also think I was raised in a bilingual family. And I think even when you're working um, and talking, you know, for example, with my dad who speaks um, Italian as a primary language, you know, he often won't get the subtleties of humor. He, you know, when you're talking to him, he understands English perfectly. His grammar is perfect, but there's these nuances that I find sometimes you have to say things slightly different. You have to avoid euphemisms. So I think when I speak, I'm a little bit more there's a part of my mind maybe
6: that I was raised in an environment that you have to really be clear in your thinking. Hmm. It's interesting because a lot of other doctors and you talk about it in the film really struggle with talking about death, even though they witness it a lot. I got a consult
2: in the neonatal intensive care unit on a baby who had been there for almost a year and a kind of common story with multiple problems and and this doctor looked at me and said, we don't think the parents understand how serious things are. And I said, okay, well, how serious are they? And he was like, well, the baby's got all these problems. I was like, so what do you think might happen? And they're like, "You know, honestly, this baby might now never make it home. And I say, so you think the baby's gonna die? And he right away was like, no, that's not what I said. And, I, and I'm not trying to be funny, but I was like, do you think the baby's gonna live here for the next 20
6: years? And Dr. Tremonti, you then asked the doctor, do you think the reason the family's confused is that you can't say it? So it sounds like part of your mission is to try to help doctors talk about death with their patients.
2: Absolutely. You know, I I really hope I can have an impact on the broader medical community to improve
6: these conversations. If a child is sick and the parents are ready to let them go, your approach is not to drag it out. What does that look like? Does it involve going to a child's home, using medications? How do you help make death more comfortable for a family and a baby?
2: I think you kind of have to start with talking with the family, what they envision, like a little speech that I might give somebody is, you know, for all of us who aren't currently ill, we don't know how we're going to die. But there's an opportunity here because your child is giving us signs that death is growing near most of us, because we have no control over how we will die. We don't like to think about it, but then if you do allow yourself a moment to think if I knew I was going to die, what types of things would you want around us? And I'll share that there are some common themes, things like most of us would want to be surrounded by loved ones that most human beings don't want to be alone, that many don't want to be in pain. You know, some people have a really vivid desire. They might say, I want to die on a beach in Hawaii at sunset. You know, other people may have more vague thoughts of what those last experiences are. And then I'll encourage a family. So if you think of it that way, what are the sights and sounds and, and smells that you would want you know, your child to experience. So if it's a family that feels strongly that your child wants to be home, well, then we go home. We do home visits. Um, In general, that might entail hospice care. So it's trying to kind of open this up as an opportunity to really create a beautiful end to a
6: story and what that may look like for a family. And might it involve uh, medication as with hospice care for older people? Might it involve removing certain medical equipment?
2: Absolutely. So, you know, we do the same things in pediatrics as you might imagine in adult medicine. You know, I'm involved in things like discontinuing um, life support, like ventilators, children experience many of the similar symptoms that you might experience in adults, like pain or trouble breathing or feeling out of breath or fear. And so the medications that you may be more familiar with in hospice care, we use very similarly in pediatrics.
6: And I imagine that some families would prefer just to keep a child alive, to see what happens. Is that really hard for you to see a family make that decision?
2: I don't think it's hard for me anymore. I think when I was younger, I would walk into rooms of children who maybe were on technological support, you know, like with a ventilator or you know, coming in for their fourth pneumonia and think to myself, goodness gracious, what are we doing here? Why did we do this? And then I recognize now that, you know, these children all have a story. At the beginning, you know, they almost all start in a moment of chaos or panic, and each decision minute by minute leads to another 20 questions, and these families were not Ever given the dis and hate. is this what you want your life or your child's life to look like two years from now or 10 years from now?
6: You also talk about the fact that a lot of families prolong this because they feel guilty about their decision to let a child die. It's not necessarily that they disagree with it morally, but there's this guilt involved.
2: We have to kind of be aware when people are making decisions based on their own self-protective. Like, I don't want to feel guilty that I didn't do enough. Well, now I'm treating your guilt, not what's right for the baby. Or maybe the doctor says, well, I don't wanna fight with this family, I don't wanna get sued. But now you're treating yourself and not the baby.
6: Dr. Stater, is there any legal risk to this kind of work?
5: There's legal risk in all of medicine, it's inherent. But I think that one of the most concrete things we can do to decrease risk is by communicating clearly. And it's doctors like Dr. Tremonti that have taught me really how to better communicate about death because some of those really formative experiences that I had early in my training were times when we wouldn't tell the family the truth or we'd talk with the family in platitudes. And then as soon as you'd walk out of the room, you'd hear physicians talk with nurses or with other doctors saying, oh my gosh, that's just hopeless. That person's going to die. And it always bothered me that we weren't being more genuine and more truthful with patients sometimes at those moments when we recognized that they were dying. And it, a lot of it's because we're so uncomfortable, even medical professionals are so uncomfortable with death, that we also just want to kick it down the road and not have them. And that's where I've learned much better about how to be truthful and how to have good conversations with family. Because the other thing that shouldn't be lost is that death can be a very formative, emotional, and beautiful time if families you know, and if patients take the opportunity to do everything that's really meaningful at the end of life, to say goodbye, to say I love you, to say I'm sorry. And so often we rob families and patients of those opportunities because we don't let them know that the time is near, that they might be dying, that they might only have days, months, weeks, even minutes in the emergency department to live. And then giving the opportunity for that patient to decide what's most important in that remaining time.
6: And Dr. Stater, this really has implications for people of all ages, for all of us um, in our lifetimes. What does this say about how people should handle death with family members no matter what stage of life they're in?
5: I think that it really puts it on us to plan for this and to think about what your last chapter should look like. And to let it be driven by thoughts of love and consequence to what you really want to leave people behind with. Because I think so oftentimes our dying process is just driven by fear. And a lot of those are really significant human fears, fears of loss, fears of suffering, fears of pain. And really what we all know is that we're all going to die. It's inevitable. And what that final chapter looks like for you is something that you have tremendous control over and really thinking about those things and communicating them with your family will oftentimes avoid suffering at the hands of medical professionals like me or a medical system that sometimes doesn't do a great job in speaking with patients about their mortality.
6: I would say that sometimes patients or people who are older and might be sick are resistant to having that conversation. Is there a delicate way to get into a discussion of death?
5: There is, and I think it's very human to not want to talk about these things as well. But I also think that when patients are dying and it's unavoidable and people have not wanted to talk about it, then it is kind of inherent on, on medical professionals to speak compassionately. And I think that's a lot of the language that we have to use around end-of-life care. Is it needs to be approved upon as well as kind of the training and uh, moral need for physicians to be better at this.
6: I was riveted by this film. It made me think a lot. I wonder who you made it for, though. Was it mainly for doctors or for anyone who's interested in this subject?
5: It was really made with everyone in mind. And I think that whether you're a layperson or whether you're a physician or whether you're someone who has a, a family member that's dying, you are going to get something from this movie. It's really not about death. It's a movie about life and about the final chapters of life and how to how to really improve upon them. And kind of the catchphrase of the movie is, you know, death is not medical, it's human. And that's really what we wanted to do with this film is, is infuse a lot of that humanity back into the dying process.
2: You know, what I would like to add is as we've been reading all the comments on the film on different social media platforms, you know, we are getting comments like you might expect from nurses and doctors, social workers really speaking to how much this film really justified and validated a lot of the problems they're having. Then we're having, like Don was saying, a lot of people who are like, you know, I need to talk with my own family more. This has really prompted that. But I think one of the categories of comments that's really deeply important and validating to my own philosophies is how many people are sharing their own experience about losing a child a year ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago and also people losing any member of their family that they had a platform and a place that it was safe to finally talk about it. And to me a lot of you know what this interview is today, the film and its wide distribution and how well it's been received, is I actually think that culturally we've been avoiding this topic for a very long time. We've put it in a you know in a corner, in a shelf. We've left dying like a reserve for things that happen on TV, that is a culture, more and more we think of death as more like somebody being killed or some doctors messing up, as opposed to. Death is the natural end to each life. And I think there is a thirst out there to, to normalize
6: discussions about this. Thanks to both of you for joining us.
5: It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Andrea.
0: Dr. Donald Stater is an emergency medicine physician in Inglewood, Colorado. He produced the film Palliative. Nadia Tremonti is a pediatric palliative care doctor at Children's Hospital of Michigan in Detroit. The film follows Tremonti as she works with very sick young children and their families. We'll put a link to the film at our website, CPR.org. After the break, a western slope county's path from COVID-19 success story to cautionary tale. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
6: Hey, it's Benta Berklin from the CPR Newsroom. For this week's bonus episode of Purplish, we talked to two of Colorado's top political strategists. Democrat Craig Hughes.
5: Where the Republican Party goes now will be very interesting to see if we
1: are indeed a blue state.
6: And Republican Josh Penry.
1: Voters in Colorado are still
4: kind of at their core a pretty discerning, mavericky lot.
6: Purplish, the Colorado Politics Podcast from CPR News. Find it wherever you get your
0: podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Mesa County has one of the highest COVID-19 infection rates in Colorado. Hospitals have banned visitors under almost all circumstances. Public gatherings of any size are not allowed, and thousands of school kids are now learning remotely. But up until recently, Mesa County was considered a coronavirus success story. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina C. tells us how that's changed.
7: It was just over two months ago that Colorado Governor Jared Polis commended three counties for being able to open up their economies wider than anywhere else in the state. He congratulated Gilpin and Rio Blanco, but Polis gave a special shout-out to Mesa County.
3: Which has really been a long leader since the very start, first in Colorado to open restaurants
7: And first to open gyms. It was also one of the first to offer in-person learning at schools.
3: And they've been very successful thus far. Knock on wood.
7: Mesa County had been so lightly hit, it took four months of the pandemic to reach 100 cases there. Now it sees at least 100 almost every day.
0: I mean, if you look at the the data, I mean, it is a spike, like a
7: 90-degree spike. Stacey Mascarenas says it happened with little warning you know it was just crazy mascarenas is a spokesperson for family health west which runs colorado canyons hospital and medical center in fruta the surge in cases started after mesa county got permission from the state health department to scale down coronavirus restrictions but mascarenas doesn't think that's to blame she says it was something else people just just kind of got complacent and we're seeing the effects of it She says local hospitals still have capacity for now. But since last week, they've prohibited visitors, except for in a few special circumstances. And all around them, the county is locking down the most it's been since spring. Starting Monday, all middle and high school students began learning remotely in the county's main sprawling school district. District 51 spokesperson Emily Shockley says they're urging people to be cautious. Limit their gatherings and, and just have maybe those tight-knit family gatherings for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Christmas and any other holidays this winter. Shockley says the district will decide next week whether middle and high schools can return to in-person classes after the Thanksgiving break. So we're just going to have to see how it goes and just ask people to be on their best behavior and we'll, we'll see uh, what comes of it. It's not just schools that are at stake. Local businesses are also taking a hit. They can no longer hold events and must limit their capacity to 25 percent, except for those with a special designation from the local health department. These restrictions can be reversed, but Jeff Koor, executive director of Mesa County Public Health, says that will require the help of all residents.
4: We really are trying to make a plea to the individual's of, you know, do your best and do your part and have some pride in our community.
7: And health officials agree that includes wearing a mask when you're in indoor public spaces or unable to socially distance. But the reality is, when you walk into a grocery store in the county, you often see at least a handful of people without masks. Oh, it just infuriates me
6: because this is why we're seeing the increase in numbers.
7: For Stacey Mascarenas with Fruita's Hospital, her response is not just because of what she's seen on the job. She got COVID-19 in August. I was declining and worried that I was going to continue to decline, thinking, what
0: if? I die. I mean, I remember going to sleep one night in particular. Just, you know, it goes through your head. It it was scary.
7: She prayed more than she ever had. Mascarenus had been around her mother before she knew she was infected.
2: If my mother got it, I mean, from me, I mean, that just, I don't know what I would have done.
7: Her mom did not get it, and Mascarenas is doing pretty well, though she has a constant dull headache and sometimes still loses her sense of taste. Despite those few unmasked people she sees at the grocery store, she thinks that locals have started to take COVID-19 seriously, as it begins to affect them personally.
2: It's getting the attention
7: now
0: that it deserves, that it deserved, you know, a while ago. Hopefully we'll start seeing a decline
7: but it hasn't happened yet. According to the latest data, Mesa County has had more than 3,700 cases, about half of them in the last two weeks. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News.
0: Finally, today, the pandemic continues to challenge musicians in ways they never expected. Take the Big Hearts Club, for example. Dear Nick, the debut single from the duo of Denver musician Dan Aid and Fort Collins guitarist Jakob Mueller. The band has had to change its musical plans because of COVID-19. As much as they wanted to connect in person, it wasn't in the cards. We tried to get together one time during COVID to, to actually like do some writing and make some music, but I don't know
3: that we could make it feel really comfortable. As far as getting people into a basement and having it be free enough to get our minds to a space where we could create new stuff.
0: Aid says he and Mueller have recorded about 20 demos. He looks forward to getting into the studio with respected producer James Doviak when the pandemic ends. Big Hearts Club, one of the most recently featured artists by our colleagues at Indy1023. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.